Autumn is an interesting time in Edinburgh. It's what in pre-COVID times one would call student tryout season. It's when hordes of freshers would travel around the churches in Edinburgh, checking them out and seeing which one they would settle in. But what were they looking for? What is it that marks out a true church? Is it just a case of finding something that suits your own tastes? Something similar to the church that you've come from? Or are there bigger questions that need to be faced? When I was in Bristol, I was fascinated to read the literature that was given out at the CU meetings there, because churches advertise themselves in a whole number of ways. For some, the key word was charismatic. For others, it was reformed. Some emphasised community and some emphasised informality. Some put the stress on worship, whilst others emphasised teaching. Now, let's be clear, I'm not knocking any of these things. Actually, each, rightly understood, should be an important part of any church's life. But the point is this, none of these descriptions in themselves is a full or adequate definition of what church really is. And the question for us this evening is, what is at the heart of biblical church life? What truly defines the church? What, what drives it forward? What is the fuel it runs on? What is its mission? And to get some answers to these vital questions, we need to go to one chapter above all others, Acts chapter 2. For there it describes both the birth of the church and gives us a description of the message that should shape its life. So let's begin by putting this passage in context. Luke makes sure we understand when it all happens. Acts 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came. Now, this is a significant detail. Pentecost was one of three annual Jewish festivals that all Jewish men were supposed to attend. The incredibly important Passover week had taken place about seven weeks previously. And then, on the 50th day after the Passover Sabbath, they celebrated the Feast of Weeks. And that's why it's also called Pentecost, because in the Greek language, Pentecost means the 50th. It was a festival that was primarily to do with giving thanks for the harvest that had been gathered in. But it was also celebrated for another reason. The Jews looked back to the first Passover when they escaped from Egypt and they remembered how 50 days after that, God gave them the law at Sinai. So Pentecost for them was also a time when they celebrated the birth of their nation. And they would have known the events that took place then. Exodus 19, we read this from verse 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it, smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Now, we notice these details because Luke assumes his Jewish readers will be familiar with them. And what took place on that Pentecost Sunday was to change the world. And in Acts chapter 2, we find the marks for all true church life. My first point is this, the church looks out. The church looks out. Let's notice what was seen. Acts 2 verses 2 to 3. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. 
See, the comparison with what happened on Mount Sinai 1500 years previously is inescapable. Just as Almighty God came down amidst his people then, so he came down upon his new people, the new Israel, at Pentecost. There was noise, there was a violent wind, and there was fire. No longer just on a mountain, but now upon each of those disciples. It was a picture that God's special presence was no longer confined to just one nation, but was now to be experienced by individual members of that faith community. What had been entrusted to the nation of Israel was now entrusted to followers of Jesus Christ. You see, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a blessing to all nations on earth. Their unique and holy character was intended to declare God's glory in all the earth. You see, Israel never existed just for the sake of Israel. God's purposes had always been to reveal his glory through them. And now that responsibility is passed on to the community of believers, there to be a blessing to the whole world as they declare the news of God's wonderful grace, what was seen, the fire. But then secondly, what was heard, Acts 2 verses 4 to 6, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now, we have to be careful here that we don't confuse this with the ecstatic spiritual speech that Paul seems to describe when he writes to the church at Corinth. No, here, these are real languages being spoken. Verse 11 makes that abundantly clear, let alone the plain sense of the word that's used in the Greek. The hard question to answer, actually, is why they did this. Why did they speak in other languages when all the people present could understand either Greek or Latin or Aramaic? It would certainly seem that Peter, when he addressed the crowd, used one of those common languages. So why this speaking in other languages? If their purpose was not to communicate with the crowd, then they must have been given as signs or symbols to help picture what the giving of the Holy Spirit really meant. And the key to this lies in the promise that Jesus gave them before he ascended to heaven. You'll remember it in Acts 1.8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what is clear is that the languages heard at Pentecost were reminders to the disciples that the giving of the Holy Spirit is intimately connected with the spread of the gospel. The good news is global. God's community cannot be confined to the old nationalistic Jewish boundaries. So that's what was heard. But then thirdly, who was present? Acts 2 verses 5 to 12. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, 
both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. See, amazed and perplexed, verse 12, they asked one another, what does this mean? See, Luke tells us that there were people, as he said, from every nation under heaven who were present then in Jerusalem when this happened. Now, he, he obviously was referring only to countries within the Greek and Roman world that were known to him. This, this shouldn't be understood literally, rather symbolically. That's why Luke very deliberately identifies where these people came from. He puts together four groups of people that run from east to west on a map, with the addition of a fifth that doesn't quite fit into the pattern. So if you start in the east, Parthians, Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, Rome and then that fifth Greek group, Cretans and Arabs. See, it's a bit like us using the expression from John O'Groats to Land's End. It embraces everywhere, even though technically there are areas that lie outside those parameters. And that's the picture that Luke wants us to get. The gospel has gone global. God's community cannot be limited to national boundaries. So part of the church's essential character is that it looks out. But my second main point is this. The church lives out. The church lives out. The noise and commotion of what was going on attracted a large crowd. And so Peter, the apparent leader among the disciples, used the opportunity to explain what was happening. It would seem that with the help of the Holy Spirit, he'd come to realise the significance of of what was going on. He saw in the events of Pentecost the fulfilment of an 800-year-old prophecy that's contained in Joel. And so he quotes from uh, Joel 2, verses 28 to 32, there in Acts uh, 2, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for our purposes today, we need to notice the breadth of what Peter's emphasising. For the prophecy begins and ends by emphasising God's work for all people. Did you see in verse 17? In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And the section ends, verse 21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And in between these bookends, the prophet makes it clear how broad ranging God's kingdom will be. It won't matter about gender. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. It won't matter about age. Young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. It won't matter about social status. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. In other words, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that inaugurated God's new kingdom, that marked the birth of the church, reveals to us the dimensions of God's grace. Who can be rescued and saved? Anyone. Where do they live? Everywhere. 
When can they come to God? Anytime. You see, God's new community was radically different from what had gone before. The church is now not limited by culture or custom, nationality or nurture, wealth or wisdom, shade of skin or shape of body. It's a global community of all God's people. And although that sounds so obvious and so true, it's a doctrine that we need to learn to apply. See, instinctively, we feel that church should be for people like us. It's, it's far more comfortable that way. We prefer it if others in the church are of the same social class or have the same intellectual attainments or the same skin colour or the same economic background. And there are many churches that pander to these selfish desires. We all want to be student churches. It's the quickest way to grow. But if that means we don't have any in our congregation who are over 50, well, so be it. Or there are ethnically exclusive churches. Churches just for Chinese or Korean or Iranian or African or Asian or Caribbean or white middle class. Or there are churches that pander exclusively to the needs of young professionals or young families or young singles. And by doing that, even if it's without deliberate intent, they're forgetting one of the central truths about God's new community. It's God's grace that uniquely breaks barriers down. It's God's grace that heals a hurting and fractured world. It's God's grace that reconciles separated people to God and to each other. And God's new community of the church should try to reflect that unifying grace in their corporate lives. So what does that mean for Charlotte Chapel? What does that mean for you? For one thing, it means it's quite likely there'll be some things that will grate on you. Some of the music will not be quite your style. Some of our corporate worship will be too dull or too lively. Some of the preaching will be too intellectual or too emotional. Some of the accents will be too strange and not sufficiently familiar. Why, here at Charlotte Chapel, we even have a church with a Welshman, a Scotsman and an Englishman on the pastoral team. And if we're to be a church that seriously wants to reflect God's global community, then we must pray and think hard how we can bless and encourage our brothers and sisters. Maybe we need to learn each other's songs, even if they're in a language different to our own. Maybe upon our return to the building, we need to remove some seating from downstairs, allowing our African brothers and sisters space to stand, and our Asian brothers and sisters space to sit on the floor. After all, actually, seating in a church building is a relatively new invention. And on a personal level, we should go out of our way to welcome and befriend people of different cultures and backgrounds. We may not find it easy. We may struggle with our Edinburgh and British reserve. But this is the sort of fellowship that marks out God's new community. To keep ourselves to ourselves is actually a denial of grace. We are members of a global church. So, as we've seen secondly, the church lives out. But then thirdly, the church speaks out. The church speaks out. Having received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Peter then immediately gets up to address the crowd that were gathering. And this sermon is recorded in detail so that we might understand the message the world needs to hear. I want us to see, first of all, the gospel is grounded in two historical events. Peter writes this. 
in Acts 22, uh, in Acts 2 verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You see, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. And although at this stage Peter doesn't unpack the implications of this death, it's clear that his Jewish listeners fully understood the idea of a sacrifice for sin. The idea that one died in the place of another. After all, that's what Passover was about. But as well as speaking about the death of Christ, Peter spends even more time talking about his resurrection. The dramatic impact of meeting the risen Jesus was still burned in upon Peter's consciousness. The sheer shock and wonder and amazement of encountering the one who had died but was now raised to life still filled the minds of the apostles. They'd seen him die. They'd seen him taken down from the cross. They knew the place where he'd been buried but They'd met him as the one who was alive, the one who defeated death, the one who was living forevermore. And we need to grasp that at the heart of the gospel, there are these two historical events. See, there's no good news if there's no cross. There's no good news if there's no resurrection. You see, the cross is the very focal point of world history, for it was there that sin was dealt with, that God's justice was satisfied that God's grace was seen. It was there that Jesus died in the place of sinners, the perfect substitutionary sacrifice. And if Christ was not raised to life, if there was no resurrection, then there would have been no victory. But the glorious historical fact is that the tomb was empty. Christ had been raised to life. He had been vindicated as God's son. My friends, we don't follow dead teachers like Muhammad or Buddha or Marx or Confucius. We follow the unique divine living saviour, the one who conquered life's greatest problem, death. And that makes all the difference to living and to dying. That's the heart of the message that must be globally proclaimed. But the second thing I want to say is this, the gospel is conditional upon two specific responses. We read this from verse Uh, 36. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles brothers what shall we do? Peter replied repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see the gospel is not just something to be heard it's also something that must be responded to. And Peter tells them that they must repent and be baptised. Now, if we're to properly grasp what he's saying, then we need to understand what he said about Jesus. He is both Lord and Christ. In other words, this Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not just an example. He's not just the miracle worker. He is none other than the king of the universe the Lord of all, God's one and only Son. And when you grasp that, when you understand that he is the king to whom we're accountable, then suddenly that changes everything. The numerous ways that I mess up my life, the numerous ways that I offend others, the numerous ways that I let myself down, actually are nothing less than willful rebellion before a loving, holy and gracious God. 
And through the gospel, I get a glimpse of myself as a guilty rebel who deserves nothing less than the judgment of a holy God. See, that's where repentance fits in. It will be the deliberate response of my heart before God. It means acknowledging my guilt and failure. It means acknowledging my total inability to put things right. It means recognising the vile foolishness of choosing my way over God's. That's why if there's no repentance, there can be no salvation. If there's no true recognition of who God is and, and no true understanding of who I am, then I'm not going to grasp why Jesus died on the cross. I, I won't see its need. And it's against this backdrop of recognising the Lordship of Christ that the command to be baptised must be understood. This isn't talking about a religious ritual. This isn't talking about being dunked in water. This isn't talking about having water sprinkled on your head as a baby. This is about acknowledging that Jesus is going to be the Lord and Master of your life. You see, to the Jew, baptism was an act of tremendous significance. It was like burning all your bridges behind you. It was like putting on a new uniform for all to see. It was an act that signified complete and total allegiance to your new master. So when Peter called upon his hearers to be baptised, it was a call to full and total obedience. It was a call to make their commitment to Christ real. It was a call to put into practice the truths that were now dawning upon them. So can you be a Christian without being baptised? Of course you can. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It has nothing to do with outward rituals. We are not saved by anything we do. It is only by trusting in what Jesus has already done. But the bigger question is this. Can you be a Christian without recognising that Jesus is Lord? And the answer would have to be a resounding no. Because a Christian is someone who has recognised Jesus for who he really is. Their Lord and Saviour. And therefore, they'll want to be obedient to what Jesus requires. They'll want to be utterly and totally committed to him. And that's why the gospel call is upon each person to repent of their sins and follow Jesus completely. It's not a case of just turning over a new leaf. It's not a case of amending our lifestyle. It's not a case of becoming religious or spiritual or moral. It's not a case of having an experience. It's seeing Jesus for who he really is and gladly giving over control to him. But then my, my third point under this is the gospel is delivered with two glorious promises. I suppose to some, what I've been saying can sound pretty austere. Giving over control of your life can sound pretty radical. So what about joy and laughter and, and purpose and peace? Well, again, from verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Do you know there's probably no sweeter word to modern ears than the word forgiven? It's what men and women are desperate to experience, to be free from guilt, to have the past dealt with, to have a new beginning. And probably as we think of forgiveness, what we have in mind is being forgiven for those big sins, those times we wish you know, had never happened and we wish we could forget. And it's clearly true that in Jesus all such sins are forgiven and dealt with. 
But when Peter was preaching forgiveness, the great sin that was troubling his hearers and cutting them to the heart was the way they dealt with Jesus. The fact they'd rejected him, the fact they hadn't recognised him for who he really was. And ultimately, that's what we need forgiveness for above anything else. You see, Jesus isn't there like some kind of spiritual Prozac, you know, take him occasionally and you'll feel better and less guilty. No, the great news of the gospel is that in Jesus, our separating sins are forgiven. Our relationship to God is restored. There is grace instead of wrath. There is reconciliation instead of separation. But more than that, as well as the wonderful gift of forgiveness, there is the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself comes to dwell within us. Just as forgiveness deals with my sinful actions, the Holy Spirit gives me power to lead a Christ-pleasing life. I'm not left alone. It's not down to my strength and resolve to live for Jesus. I have the Holy Spirit's presence and power. <laughs> Wonderfully liberating news. When so many people live fractured and lonely lives, when so many people feel weak and hopeless, when so many people feel they are drifting along on a meaningless sea of chance, the gospel breaks in and declares that God will give help and strength and comfort and purpose to all his children. They will not be left alone. He will live in them. He will delight in them, he will use them, and in his good time, he will take them to glory. What a saviour, what a gospel, what great news to share. But I must close by asking whether you've understood and responded to this gospel. Have you, have, have your eyes been opened to the sort of person you really are? And have you been able to see that Jesus Christ, the one crucified on the cross and raised to life, is your only hope? Have you responded by acknowledging your sin and failure? Or do you think you're good enough, religious enough, wise enough to reject such an offer of salvation? And I must ask the Christians listening in, have you got it that the church is about the gospel? It's not here primarily to meet your needs. It's not here to be a social club. It's not here to provide some sort of musical entertainment. It's not here to give you some sort of uplifting experience. It's about the gospel. It's about sharing and teaching the good news. It's about modeling the grace of Jesus in our interactions. It's about encouraging one another to be good disciples who can reach others. It's about living out the love of Jesus wherever we are. It's about ensuring that the gospel message travels throughout the world. Well, may we at Charlotte Chapel be such a church. May this gospel grip our hearts. And as a result, therefore, may we take so seriously our task of spreading the good news of Jesus, not just in our city, but throughout this world and supporting those who have felt the call to go into that cross-cultural work. Well, the Lord bless you and use you and pray that this uh, Mission Sunday has spoken into your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the wonder of the gospel. We thank you for all that we see there in Acts chapter 2. Father, help us to take it to heart. Uh, and may we not just do mission because we think it's just one of those bolt-ons to church life. Father, may we understand mission is at the very heart of who we are and what we are. Help us to be missional in the way that we conduct ourselves. And Lord, when we have the opportunity to get back together corporately, may that be visible and obvious. 
And Father, for our hearts where we live, may we be missional as we seek to reach out with the good news of Jesus to friends and colleagues and neighbours. And, and Lord, give us a passion to see the gospel going out to unreached people groups across this planet and help us corporately as a church to take that responsibility seriously. Thank you for those you've given us. May we be wise stewards of this responsibility. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to finish our time together by singing uh, the, the mission hymn that we uh, always sing on a day like this. Let's rejoice in its great words, facing a task unfinished.